Welcome to Cultural Connections Lab. I'm your host, Kelly Forbes. We are here to talk with educational professionals around the world to impact and influence the education system as we focus on cultural connections and the education of multilingual diverse students. We're excited to have you join us today and we sincerely hope you enjoy the show. Hello, listeners. My name is Kelly Forbes, and I am excited to be here with our producer, Mike Overholt, as well as Dr. Jeffrey Taylor Tribble on another episode of Cultural Connections Lab. I am here with Mr. Dr. David Holbrook. He is a nationally renowned expert in the administration of EL programs. He earned his PhD in linguistics at the University of the West Indies in the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago and has over 25 years of experience working with speakers of other languages. He has lived in five countries and worked in more than 15. He spent nearly six years at the Wyoming Department of Education where he held positions as Federal Programs Division Director, Title I Director, Title III Director, and for six months was Director of both the Federal Programs and Assessment Divisions. Dr. Holbrook also served as the state's Native American Education Consultant, working with the Northern Arapaho and Eastern Shoshone tribes on the Wind River Indian Reservation. As Federal Programs Division Director, he was responsible for oversight of federal education programs, including McKinney-Vincho programs for students experiencing homelessness. He trained with the U.S. Department of Education and participated in federal monitoring of Title III in five states. He has served 13 years with the National Association of English Learner Program Administrators, NIOPA, two years as president, and is now NIOPA's executive director. He also works for Transact Communications and is Transact's Executive Director of Federal Programs and State Relationships. In relation to NALPA, NALPA is an organization, it's a professional organization that serves members and stakeholders at the local, state, and national levels. Their mission is to provide professional learning communication and advocacy for multilingual learners and their families and communities. They aim to be an expert voice on behalf of the state and local education agencies in supporting the success of multilinguals across the U.S. NALPA facilitates intercommunication among members to promote effective English language development, dual language, bilingual, and similar programs to achieve educational goals. They disseminate information on research-based instructional strategies, news, tools, and resources for multilingual program administrators. NALPA also provides professional learning opportunities to local and state education agencies, disseminating best practices and equips educators with the skills and knowledge to meet the needs of multilingual learners. Additionally, NALPA advocates for multilingual learners at the national level by collaborating with organizations supporting fair and equitable policies and leading actions to develop effective policies that support multilingual learners and their families. With all of that, a big welcome to the renowned Dr. David Holbrook. <laughs> <laughs> that was a all lot. Right. How are you doing today? I'm I'm doing good. Thanks. I'm gonna you know tell Nelpa Nelpa they need to hire you to start introducing Nelpa. He's a, he's awesome, right. isn't he? Yeah, wow. that was uh, one heck of an introduction. That's really cool. Well, it, you're one heck of a gentleman to have on here with us, and we are truly just enthusiastic about having you here, and also all the work that is being done um, through Nelpa. And I am sporting the T-shirt today, listeners. Just so you know, I am wearing the National Association of English Language Program Administrators T-shirt. Where can they go buy that, David? Uh, just give Jenna a shout. She's got them. She can sell you one and mail it to you. 
Yes. I will do a little plug here also for the website for Naalpa. If you are interested, listeners, the website is naelpa.org. Again, naelpa.org. And I encourage all of you to go on and visit. But going right into our conversation today, we just are excited to have you here. Dr. Holbrook, thank you so much for everything that you do in the field of education. And we'd like to start off with just trying to get to know and have our our listeners get to know you a little bit more personally and professionally. Well, thanks. Um, It's my my pleasure to be here. Uh, I'll follow up. I should have been a little more specific. If anyone is interested in a NELPA t-shirt, they can email Jenna Webb, uh, J-E-N-N-A dot W-E-B-B at nelpa.org. Um, so that that email address will get you right to her and ask her about the t-shirts if you're interested. But anyway, thank and, you. And, yeah. And um, in that regard, I know we'll be talking a fair amount about NELPA, but is there any other swag, cool stuff that can be purchased to support the organization? Uh, and we we just a t-shirt. That's the only thing that we have that you can, and it's and it's a suggested donation. It's not really a, a sale. So, um, so we have a suggested donation. I think it's thirty dollars for the the t-shirt, something like that. Is yeah. that right? That's Ellie? correct. Yeah. That, that is correct. That's, yeah, I bought that, one that and I was trying to remember. Yeah. So but, yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Back back to you. <laughs> now, if if you don't mind, could you just share a little bit for our listeners just about. Who is Dr. David Holbrook, personally and professionally? Just a little bit about you. Uh, sure. Uh, you know, I've one of my you know passions is has always been you know trying to make sure I, I'm in some type of role that's helping other people. Uh, it's it's something that motivates me. Uh, you know, keeps a smile on my face when I see that what I've done actually you know makes somebody else happy or helps them out in some way, shape, or form. So that's. That's sort of, you know, when it comes to everything I do, the the internal, you know, motivation for me is is along those lines. So I I worked for 16 years overseas doing original linguistic research, uh, trying to identify uh, language groups that were ripe for language development. There's there's around 7000 languages in the world and, uh, you know, about half of them, maybe a little more than half of them actually have a, a developed writing system. And so, you know, trying to do the, I did linguistic research to determine what's called uh, language boundaries and ethnolinguistic vitality or whether a language is living or dying. And so wow. my PhD was a comparison of the grammars of four languages to try to classify them to see if they could either share literacy materials or adapt them easily. Uh, Do you mind taking us back even further? Like, how did you even become interested in in this topic? So when I was like, it's not typical that every somebody's just like, "Hey, man, (laughs) you know, I want to study the languages of the world." I I fell into that category too through my travels. But like, how how did you become interested in this topic? Yeah. So so when I was in college, I um I took a I, I was at a Bible college and I took a course in ancient Greek and ended up doing three years of ancient Greek and did really well uh, in, in that, in those studies. And that sort of got me interested in the whole side of Bible translation and things like that. And I found this organization called Wycliffe Bible Translators, and they have a sister organization that started off with the name, the Summer Institute of Linguistics, but it eventually merged to just SIL International. And they're based out of Dallas. And so I looked into working with them and ended up 
working on the, the SIL side doing this linguistic research. And Wycliffe Bible translators would take that and decide where they would send their Bible translators, but they would use the research that SIL did uh, to make some of those determinations. A lot of other, you know, you know, uh, you know, academics and, and other linguistic researchers, you know, really loved and really loved the linguistic, you know, papers and other things that folks who work with SIL put out because they're putting out a lot of papers and data that in some of these, you know, rural and remote and, and minority languages that, you know, you don't see a lot of data for unless you, you can go there yourself. So and it's still a very prominent organization, correct? Oh yeah, yeah. It's a multinational organization. They got tons of work all over the world. Um, I worked in uh, Guyana in South America and with the uh, English-based Creoles in the Caribbean. Uh, that was where the majority of my work was. My my comparison, my grammatical comparison, comparison for my PhD was um, the the Creoles in Guyana, Grenada, Saint Vincent, and Tobago. Wow. What were so I'm now I'm curious what what were the findings? <laughs> well, the elevator okay, so, speech version, right? <laughs> no, it's yeah, a I'll, dissertation. I'll not, <laughs> yeah. So, Creole languages have what's called isolating morphosyntax. What basically that means is they don't use affixation. So, like in English, past tense is ed. In Creole, it's a word that comes before the verb rather than an affix after the ver- verb. Um, and so there's there's a different grammatical structure. The grammar the grammars are more based on uh, some some West African languages. So you have this English vocabulary that's redefined and used differently, and the grammar's different. And uh, so when when I started trying to decide how am I going to determine how to classify these languages, because tr- typical languages uh, when over time as they develop and grow apart. Like we know that Italian and Spanish and French are all similar. They're all those romance languages. They all come from a, a root language. But with a Creole language, you have a dominant social group that ends up interacting with a um, a subordinate social group. And you get this third, this language that comes out of it that isn't really directly connected to either one of them because you have the vocabulary borrowed from one and the grammar kind of superimposed from another. So how do you group those? Because there's no way to do it what linguistically, genetically, in a sense. Um, and so when I started looking, at, because of that isolating morphosyntax, where you have separate words for the grammar, I started looking at the, the words used to mark the grammars of these languages. And when I did that, I, I noticed that there was a pattern in, a, in terms of the main difference between some of these creoles, because the grammars were very similar, but the grammatical markers for like past tense and, and other things were tended to be either different or slightly different, or they were variations that weren't the same between the creoles. And so I looked at a, a list of a, a whole bunch of grammatical markers, everything from, uh, you know, personal pronouns to the verbal markers to you know, um, just a, a whole host of things uh, that that I was looking at. So uh, when I pulled all of those together and started doing comparisons, prepositions, all kinds of stuff, uh, I was able to, based on, you know, the percentages of similarity, be able to start grouping these languages and actually proving some of the, 
you know, existing classifications as incorrect because um, they were basing them on uh, people migrations rather than on actual linguistic features. Wow, this is incredibly interesting to me, actually. I so I, <laughs> but I, I also love this topic. I love this conversation. Um, there's research that I'm sure that you're well aware of, and that the way that we think is different based on the languages that we know, because there are different brain and cognitive patterns, and so the 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 way so therefore thinking becomes differentiated based on the different types of languages that we do know. And just hearing all of that right now makes me just want to ask the question, did you find any cultural, you know, <laughs> cultural connections? But were there cultural connections to what you were learning when it comes to the linguistic components of these groups of, of people in their language and the way that their culture is influenced based on their language or vice versa? versus I, the English language, for example, you know, and then even through the translations of the of the Bible. I mean, that's just yeah, well, really interesting. Yeah, uh, there's a couple of things I'll point out. One of them, uh, there are definitely some, you know, cultural, when I say cultural schema, some things that are happening within a culture, and you see that re reflected in the vocabulary. So like when I was living in Guyana in South America, uh, they were... They were former British colony. They gained their independence and then became communist and tried to be like, uh, tried to be self-sustaining. So they cut off imports and did all of this stuff that ended up in situations where there was a lot of, um, a lot of hunger and, and other issues, you know, poverty, hunger, uh, just because of the way the, the government ran things and the way that they, they cut off all imports and, you know, it was it was strange. So you end up you ended up with uh, a lot of innovation and in, in how they fed themselves. So there were things that people would give me to eat that I would go, how did you ever figure out that you could actually eat this thing? You know, yeah, like there was there was this there was this little bush that grew these yellow pods. And, you know, the when the yellow pods were ready, they were ripe and you crack them open. And there are these square black seeds that were covered with this white pulp, which was a little sweet. And they would like pop these open and get the put it in their mouth and spit out the seed and eat the pulp because it it, it was sweet and it was a, a source of, you know, food. So I was I, I, I always amazed me how they even figured out that that was even edible and that it actually tasted decent. Um and there were other similar things with seeds that had pulp and juice around them. Uh, one of them they called ginnips. And it was this, you know, seed, seed uh, pod that was a little smaller than a golf ball. And you'd crack open the green outside and, you know, pop this thing in your mouth and, choose, you know, scrape off the pulp from the seed itself, which the seed itself was like a large boulder, you know, like a marble boulder. Uh, but, I mean, and it, it, they... They ate this kind of stuff all the time. And so when you, they had to be creative in the food they could get. And so when you start looking at the terminology that they have for, you know, if someone is like a glutton or, you know, greedy for food or things like that, they had multiple terms that described people who wouldn't share food, who were gluttonous and greedy and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but it was like all of this different terminology just related to um, bad behaviors toward food. 
Wow, that is interesting. That was fascinating. Those are things that can't, you know, I, I love these conversations because these are things that you can't Google translate. No, you can't. <laughs> no. ChatGPT yeah. won't tell it to you. No. But <laughs> so so you, when you go into a language group, you see those kinds of things. So what are... Go ahead, sorry. No, what were you going to say? Oh, I, I think... I, w- I want to ask it after you complete your thought because I'm, 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 I have a question that I think will divert your thoughts. So I want you to oh, finish I was, it. I was gonna, I was gonna go to the Bible translation. Side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm curious um, because I, you know, I did a little bit of piloting with, um, you know, with some, with a couple of verses in, in of scripture, you know, to try to see how people would respond to it, things like that, and. It was really interesting, uh, you know, I, I was able to get in front of a group of pastors and I had this young man who I was working with stand up and, um, you know, in these countries, the national language is English. It's the language of business. It's the language of banking. It's the language of school. But at home, you know, the language of the heart, the, the language they use to talk, the language they yell at their kids in is Creole. You know, so it's the language of passion, mm-hmm. in a sense, the language of their heart. So I got this young man and and uh, I stood up and I read this passage of scripture that he had worked with me to translate um, in English. And then I, I asked him to come up and he read it in Creole. And we had probably, you know, 70 pastors in the room. And they just sat there quietly while I read it and were like, why is this guy reading the scripture to us? We're all pastors. I know this kind of thing. You know, it was like I was boring them to tears. And this 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 young man got up and started reading the same passage in Creole. And their their eyes lit up and they were like, yeah, you know, and when he finished, you know, everybody cheered. One guy stood up and raised his hands like, yeah, you know, all of this stuff. And it was it was the same passage of scripture, but it was in their language. And it made such a huge difference for them in terms of how they responded. Yeah. And and so and and for me, um, that that whole concept you were talking about of understanding things differently, when you when you understand a second language and you can read scripture in a second language, there are nuances of meaning and other things that come out of that because the cult because of the cultural differences Mm -hmm. and i actually love reading and listening to to scripture and creole because of that for me um so that that that's one of the things that i really like because it was like i i i kind of you know english is my first language and you know but having worked and studied creole i just it just i don't know i just get a joy out of hearing scripture and creole no that makes it Definitely, though. I mean, that connection to that that emotional side, that that passion side, is so real. Yeah. I think important for us to recognize as something that's very valuable um, in, yeah. our, in our delivery of anything that we're giving based on the audience with, to whom we're speaking. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I guess that does lead into the question that I was going to ask: is how, how have these really intriguing experiences, life experiences that you have have had? internationally how how they changed you and led to the work and passion you have for helping uh, minority communities here in the united states well most of the people groups i worked with you know they're they are in in a, in a big way minority groups and they don't have a lot of you know influence in the world they're not like living in uh major world powers things like that and you know like i mentioned 
uh, my motive, a lot of my motivation and internally is always what can I do to help people? So, you know, trying to bring literacy and the scriptures to people was, was really important to me. So uh, when I got to the point where I, I left there, uh, I, I struggled for a little bit trying to figure out how do, wh- what do I do now? Where am I going to go? And um, I started uh, looking for work. I, I, I'm a handyman. So I, I was, you know, I helped a friend build a pole barn. I, you know, refinished the bathroom. I did all kinds of stuff. Uh, just to try to make a little money. The organization SIL knew that I could write academically really well, and they had some linguists who weren't good writers. So they hired me on a contract basis to basically work with some of their linguists to help write up um, a- academic reports on language uh, that that those linguists were studying so that they could be published, things like that. Um, so I was doing that. And then I started teaching um, in Colorado State University's intensive English program. Are you They've from Colorado originally? No, I, w- I was born in Michigan. Okay. And how did you uh, land so in Colorado? I in Detroit. Uh, my older brother was here, and and I had a, a job offer at Colorado State University. Uh, so I, that's how I ended up over here. Uh, but adjuncts at, in Colorado State, they don't make a lot of money. I was working I three jobs. Anywhere. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was working three jobs to make ends meet. So I was looking for something else and uh, working, you know, teaching ESL basically to students from overseas who needed to improve their English in order to be able to, they'd been accepted at the university, but in order to be able to take classes, they had to improve their English skills. So I was working in that type of a program um, and uh, I applied for the Title III director position uh, at the Wyoming Department of Education, thinking, okay, I know and understand English learner issues, but I know nothing about federal education law. There, there's no way I'm going to get this job. And so they called me up for an interview, and I was like, okay, this will be good practice. You know, <laughs> I'm, thinking, I'm thinking I'm not going to get this job. There's no way because I don't know anything about federal education law. And I walked in there, and they started the interview. And, you know, by the end of the interview, they were asking questions like, uh, you know, if you have to drive for a long time out in the middle of nowhere with no cell reception, is that going to bother you? And I'm like, what kind of a, you know, interview question <laughs> is, is this? Um, what, well, what did you out, answer? You, know, you, you said I, no, I right? Was like, I was like, yeah, no worries, <laughs> you know. Wait, now, um, now this, they're talking about cell phones makes me wonder. This could not have been that long ago. I mean, we haven't had cell phones that long. Uh, well, or I guess, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't start working for Wyoming until like 2008. Okay. Yeah, uh, about uh, right around when the iPhone came out. <laughs> so you could have been. I, I about... had my first Wyoming phone was like one of those Blackberries with the actual keyboard on the phone. Where you yeah, had to... <laughs> yeah, it the was core uh, keyboard. Yeah. So, so I, by the time I left, I, I was living in Fort Collins, Colorado at the time and driving, I drove up to Cheyenne. It's about an hour drive, did the interview. I got halfway home and one of my references called me. And uh, I, what I found out later is the, the Wyoming Department of Education had had a string of Title III directors. Some of them knew and understood L programs, but were lousy administrators. And some of them were good administrators, but knew nothing or weren't weren't functional with L programs. And so for somebody who, uh, you know, me, who could do administration and grant budgeting and all of that and knew L programs, they were like, bingo. And so uh, that's how I ended up getting hired there. And 
Well, yeah, you're a quick study because you know uh, federal programs policy better than anybody I, I know personally. So <laughs> picked it up. Quick. Well, I mean, uh, I, I was able to, you know, spend the time in Title III pretty quickly. And then the, we had our Title I director leave. And so I had to learn Title I because they moved me to that position. And then the federal programs division director left and they asked me to move up into that position. So then I had to cover all federal programs. And when I moved to transact and they changed the law, I had to read the entire law to, you know, because the product I work with there is parent notices. And so the parent notices that the law requires or is are helpful to implement the law are what I work with. And so I had to read the entire law and, uh, you know, try to figure out what notices are needed to help implement this, you know, law. And when I did that, I started seeing the overlap between things like what are the L requirements in Title One versus what's what's you know outlined in Title Three, and how are they working together, and what are the collaboration requirements? Because there's significant collaboration requirements that most people know nothing about in the law. And so I, I started like pulling things together and taking notes and putting you know charts together of information and. Uh, was able to start to do presentations that talk about, hey, what are the requirements for serving English learners in Title I? You know, just Title I, but forget Title III. What does Title I have to do? Mm -hmm. If you're a district that gets no Title III funds, what do you have to do for English learners? You know, stuff like that, that, you know, people, you know, don't know a lot about. And uh, it, it was, it's been helpful. I, I talk about, I do a presentation on collaboration requirements for uh, Title One and Title Three with McKinney Vento uh, Homeless Assistance Act. So you've got, you know, of of the L population in the country, there's about 10% of our students are English learners. Mm -hmm. About 17%, maybe a little more, of uh, the population of students experiencing homelessness is English learners. So it's close to double what we see in the general population. And I call English learners experiencing homelessness, super at-risk students because of just the very nature of the the barriers to education, but then the additional barriers if they're, you know, having to worry about where they're sleeping and where their next meal is going to come from and all of those types of things that students experiencing homelessness have to deal with. So, Well, hey, listen, let me ask this. For any superintendent or any educational leader out there that's listening to this right now, what is some advice that you would want to give them of, of course, going to Nalpa's page and, but what, what it's, what's one big takeaway or one big piece of advice that you would want to give them right now? Because I know for a fact across the country, but specifically here um, where we are located in Oklahoma, that we do have those exact students that are in that 10% and that 17%. And I know that we have educators that want to do the best that they can to help serve those students in every single aspect, but they also are not privy to this information as well. So what is one piece of advice that you could give them to help them on their journey in supporting all of their students? Yeah, when it comes to like implementing federal funds, federal programs, one of the big things that I always encourage, you know, L directors when I speak with them, but anyone um, is... When you're doing your planning of how you're, what you're, what are you going to do with these funds? Include English learners in the upfront planning side of things, mm. because what we see happen most of the time is you get groups of people together, and oftentimes the L coordinator isn't even involved, and you get the Title One director and the superintendent, and they start planning out how are we going to use all of our federal money. Yes, 
And then they get down the road and they get this plan in place and then they go, oh, we forgot about English learners. And they come back and try to retrofit things in. And that never works well. Um, so I always say, you know, if you're if you're doing your planning and your budgeting, be looking at how you can serve English learners in in the in the whole from the start so that they're part of the planning to integrate into everything you do rather than try to retrofit back in. You know, there there was a big change in from NCLB to ESSA. Mm-hmm. And and that big change is the requirements for accountability for English learners, for the standards and assessment for English learners, for the parent parent meetings and parent communications with English learners. Those requirements moved from Title Three to Title One. Title Three still has the you know the the required activities of you know providing professional learning and providing programs that help English learners attain English proficiency and acquire content knowledge. And under ESSA, there's a third uh, parent, family, and community engagement required activity. Uh, those are still there under Title III, but there's significant things that were moved and now are solely in Title I. Mm-hmm. Yes. And when you look at that accountability side of things, that comes with the potential for if your students aren't meeting, your English learners aren't meeting academic targets and goals, and or English proficiency targets and goals. And it's the first that you you have the capability of using school improvement funding. Yes. Because there's a pot of money set aside for school improvements. School support and improvement is called in, in ESSA. And it's the first time <clears throat> that we've actually had funding that can address English language proficiency um, in school improvement, school support and improvement. And so that's a huge piece that I'm, I, another piece I'm always talking about that if, if you have a school that's in support and improvement and you have, you know, one of the reasons is because your L population isn't meeting targets, you can use your school improvement funds to address English language proficiency. I'm so thankful that you brought that up is that having the language learners that we have in our districts, our multilingual learners, our emergent bilingual students really at the forefront of our thinking and our planning and our processes and what we're doing. That was also, um, you're, you're echoing something that I just, um, I, I've always believed and felt, um, but I was able to just attend the Reading League conference in Las Vegas, Nevada. And it was an incredible one day um, full of different panelists. And that was, apart from many different topics, though, that was kind of one of the overall themes is that you know, typically we always see a little bubble on the bottom of a page in a teacher's handbook about what to do for your emergent bilingual student. And that's the point whenever they start thinking about what they're supposed to be doing, whenever what you're saying, though, and suggesting and recommending that I want to echo as well, is that you have that in the beginning of your planning process. We need to make sure that we can understand not just that linguistic component that's going to be required to help our multilingual students, but also that cultural component, right? That pillar of sociocultural competence. Can you speak to any part of that? Because um, I think, of course, already we have leaders across the the country and here in the state of Oklahoma where we are considering things that we can do to help raise language proficiency levels in English for the students. I've been fortunate to work with districts where we're having more of asset-based pedagogical conversations about the utilization of native language and not taking away their language, but on that on that sociocultural competent side of things, what what's important for leaders to know as they're doing what you just recommended, which is considering those students in the forefront of our minds through our planning? 
Yeah, there's there's a couple of things that come to mind when you say that. You know, one of them is just if you look at the research on dual language and bilingual programs, uh, they, students may be a little bit slower to come to full English proficiency in those programs. But post that, they tend to perform even outperform, you know, monolingual English speakers when it comes to academics on the academic side. So those programs and the research behind those programs shows that the the, the effectiveness effectiveness of those. And when it in some of the research I looked at when it comes to like taking assessments, um, and uh, you know how language impacts academics and things like that. Uh, there there are a few things that are documented that actually you know have been proved to be beneficial for multilingual learners. And one of those, like on assessments, extra time. Mm -hmm. Give them extra time because they don't process things in English as, you know, on an English test as fast as your monolingual English speaker might. And and that goes back to uh, the fact that if you're trying to bring a student to proficiency in English and ignoring their first language, then you're ignoring the language that they have the greatest ability to become literate in. Um, and there is research that shows that if students become literate in their first language, those literacy skills transfer to English very easily. So it's there if if they're learning English as a second language and they're already literate in their first language, they have a much greater ability to learn English and become literate in English much quicker because it's less cognitively demanding mm -hmm. to learn literacy skills in your first language than it is in your second language. As you guys talk about this, I think um, thinking about the educators out there that don't have the expertise that you guys have in supporting emergent bilingual, multilingual students, what um, are resources that and things that educators that want to learn more to become more involved to help uh, that some population of students but don't have experience with? What what can they do? What are some services that NAILPA provides? Um, and what are some uh, other places that you recommend they might go to get help uh, to help their own students? That's a great question. Yeah. So and and I mean, Kelly, you can probably answer some of this, too. But there are um, for uh, from the NAILPA side of things, uh, you know, if you listen to Kelly's introduction, we do a lot with professional learning. We have a professional learning committee. Uh, we have quarterly webinars. We have our annual conference and we try to provide presentations that actually address the needs of uh, states and districts. Uh, we formed an LEA committee this year, and one of their goals is to identify issues that are of great concern um, at the school district, local education agency level, and then to start working with our professional learning committee and our conference committee to make sure that some of those topics are addressed in our quarterly webinars, our, in, our, in our conference presentations. And then we also do a monthly coffee ch networking coffee chat. And so we're going to be helping those uh, I, helping uh, or trying to influence those coffee chats to be raising some of these topics that uh, our LEA committee identifies as important issues uh, related to uh, Eng um, English learner teachers and administrators at the at the district level. So that's that's a couple of things. But there's there's lots of other resources out there. Um, you know, if you're in a state that belongs to an assessment consortium, probably at some point in time, there's probably some training that's going to be available. Um, maybe maybe on you know 
administering the assessment, but maybe on other things as well. Uh, when Wyoming first joined the WIDA consortium, I I put tons of money into for professional learning, and and it was not just on uh, the WIDA assessment. It was on you know how do you use standards in instruction, and uh, you know just tons of different things that you can find from the assessment consortium that your state might belong to. I think it's fantastic. I, I think you know sometimes. I mean, <clears throat> of course. I would, I'm always going to recommend going to the NAPA website <laughs> and definitely utilizing the, um, the association. But I think another amazing resource that we often um, forget to include in school districts specifically, because we're always so busy, there's always a deadline, there's always something going on. But I think that our biggest resource is just, um, I would just recommend and encourage everyone to talk to your students and talk to your parents and to listen, you know? I feel like um, I have to remind myself oftentimes um, what my role is and what I'm doing. And it's not to be speaking for anyone. It's to be able to help share resources, information, but also to create space so the students that we are serving can be in communication with us to let us know what those needs are and what those families' needs are as well, whether they be linguistic needs or cultural needs and things of that matter. But I think our families and our students can definitely be amazing assets and resources and even better whenever it's in conjunction with the information that you were just sharing. Yeah, I think you're 100% right on with that. And one of the, I've done a, a presentation on, you know, using culture to engage students and families. And, you know, that's, that's part of this. That's one of the sides of things because, uh, you know, if you are able to find connections within their culture that you can use in the classroom, uh, that's huge. And a lot of times you, the, the place you're going to find those, it might be students, but the parents are going to be the ones who are going to tell you the things that are important to them that their students know about their culture. And so if you can get engaged with the parents and get them to share, even, you know, you know, if you can vet it appropriately, get them to come in and talk about, hey, in our culture at this time of year, we have this going on and this is important to us for these reasons. Mm -hmm. It, it it not only reinforces that with the students of those parents, but it also, you know, opens the eyes and broadens the, you know, worldview of the other students in the classroom. Oh, definitely. I think it enriches the whole classroom, right? And even you as yeah. an individual, though, right? And I'm sure, like, I'm sure we have very similar experiences, all of us sitting here at the table, that our travels and our, our um, exposure to other types of cultures and languages have really helped us understand ourselves and our cultures even more, enriching our lives. And so I just think it's exciting to create space for that. I love it. Since you, yeah. are, since you are so in tune with, uh, you know, one of your areas of expertise being policy, uh, moving forward, um, is there anything on the horizon that you feel like educators need to be aware of as far as policy, what's coming out, um, things that excite you or things that you might be concerned about either way? Yeah, I mean, right now where we're at, because of everything that's happening uh, politically at the national level, you know, the big thing I would be looking at right now is, hey, when is the next reauthorization of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, you know, coming down the pipe? We, we saw NCLB. Now we have ESSA. ESSA was written with a five-year expiration date, and it was passed in 2015. Uh, and so hmm. that puts it to December of 2020. And here we are, you know, two two years later, a little more than two years later, two and a half years 
past the deadline of when Congress was supposed to take this up and reauthorize it again. Uh, and I would be normally going, okay, we need to be looking at this. But unlike NCOV, there's there's nothing that is egregious in the law. Uh, NCLB had this thing where you had to gradually move your targets up so that all your students were proficient in, in your schools mm -hmm. uh, academically. Like 100% of your students had to be um, by like 2013. And when 2013 hit, they started doing these waivers and all kinds of stuff because they knew it was unrealistic expectation. And it was supposed to have been reauthorized before then, but it didn't happen. So here we are in a situation where Congress wrote into the law that it should be reauthorized you know, in 2021, and it didn't happen. And here we are in 2023, and it still isn't even talked about. I'm not as I'm not as concerned about it because of the way the law made the changes. Things seem to be okay with with what we have in place, uh, so that there isn't anything that's causing huge difficulties for districts and identifying all your schools as an improvement and things like that. Uh, you know, we were identifying our highest performing schools in Wyoming as you know, in need of improvement. It was crazy. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, so if, if you if you didn't get those waivers or whatever, it, it, it caused real messes. Um, but uh, you would think on my radar would be, hey, what's going to happen with this federal education law? Because it's two years overdue to be, you know, reauthorized. Congress has too many other things on its plate. They're not even going to look at <laughs> this law for, you know, I, I mean, maybe they'll look at it if Biden's elected for another term you know, after uh, after the midterms in his in his next term, if if he's elected and, and all of that, they might start looking at it at that point. But I don't expect, you know, within the next few years are going to do anything. And to me, that's the big thing we need to watch, because that's, you know, when it comes to federal education law and policy, they might update some regulations, they might, you know, put out some new guidance, but there's nothing that's going to have a, a severe impact on uh, what we're doing. You know, one of the big things to pay attention to is ESSER funds right now, the elementary and secondary school emergency relief funds that mm -hmm. came through the COVID-19 bills. You yes. know, that funding is like you had in the course of a year, $190 billion in education funding dumped on school districts and states. That's like it was more at the time it was more than 10 times the annual funding that they got in addition to what they normally get in a year but the the big issue with that funding is it's one time funding once it expires it's not going to be replaced so you know esser 1 funds from the cares act have already expired esser mm -hmm. 2 funds expire september 30th this year if you haven't committed to spend those funds by september 30th you lose them yeah and then ESSER 3, it's September 30th next year. Um, and there are some things going on with that. You know, there's a liquidation period of 120 days. So if you commit to spend it by September 30th, you can actually pay it out up until 120 days afterwards. And there there, there are some exceptions you can get for to extend that liquidation period. Uh, but if you don't commit to spend it on time, you lose it. Um, con con uh, Congress would have to change the law in order to extend that because the U.S. Department of Education can't. They can extend the liquidation period under extenuating circumstances, but they cannot ex extend the period of availability, which ends on September 30th. Yeah, there's definitely a, 
I was working in a in a district over the ESSER funding as well. So yeah, I uh, I'm gonna say definitely be paying attention uh, to those dates and make sure that we have that that money um, used in the best way possible to support all students. But of course, we're gonna promote our uh, multilingual emergent bilingual students for sure. I'm I'm curious yeah. um, with you know we're we're all in support of movement to change uh, terminology for group of students that we're working with to more asset-based language. And I'm curious if you're hearing on the federal end, like, you know, there's a talk, uh, depending on where, what region you're in, you know, we're starting to use multilingual learner, emergent bilingual. Um, but there hasn't really, it doesn't seem to be anybody's really decided on from a, at a federal level of what, how we're, we're going to, um, what term we're going to use for this group of students. Do you anticipate that federally they'll change the name or is it just going to kind of be up to the region to well right now the the way things did and and nelpa did uh our you know one of our committees produced a white paper on using asset-based terminology but have also having an asset-based mindset because mm-hmm. the asset-based mindset really is the area where you're going to make a difference in the uh the the way things are done because you can change the terminology all you want, but if people still have a negative attitude and and don't view the students, you know, with value, then you're not going to see uh, a change in, in those types of things. But back to the terminology question, you know, NAILPA prefers the terminology multilingual learner, but in the law, it's it's English learner right now, mm-hmm. and so um, and it used to be limited English proficient. So at some point. Yeah, and it was, and, and, you know, used to be English language learner too, uh, but not in the law. They went right from limited English proficient to English learner. The field was using English language learner. And then there were some people who were like, well, isn't language redundant here? Right. Um, But I mean, my favorite t-shirt says department of redundancy department. So I was okay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I want one of those t-shirts too. (laughs) Where can we get that? (laughs) But but I'm fine with English learner. It works and uh, it's in the law, but there are some people who still consider that a deficit base because it focuses on the fact that they're learning English, like they're not proficient in English where multilingual learner focuses on an an asset side because they're learning more than one language. So if you're just not proficient in a language or you're such and such a learner, you're, you're not there yet. So that some people consider that a deficit. Uh, based term. Whereas with multilingual learners, it fo- it highlights and focuses on the fact that, you know, this is someone who has facility in more than one language, uh, which which is an asset. Yes. Uh, and and it doesn't focus on just one language they don't know. And so that's why NELPA prefers that terminology. We struggle with emergent bilingual, and I'll tell you why. I, I don't mind the term. It's definitely recognition. If you're talking about just the students, but when you start referring to programs for those students as emergent bilingual programs, mm-hmm. and That's the vast different. majority of them, the vast majority of them's goal is to move them to English proficiency and not provide any support for the first language, that really isn't a bilingual program. And if you're calling it an emergent bilingual program and you're not supporting the first language, then there's there's some discrepancy, incongruence in in saying things like that. So while I like the term emergent bilingual, the fact that 
when you use it to refer to programs for these students, it causes problems from my perspective. Where multilingual learner, it doesn't necessarily cause those problems. Only problem I see multilingual learner uh, pose would be the fact that, I mean, I guess in a way I consider myself a multilingual learner. So, um, you know, how do you differentiate between the group of students that you have to have a term for, for funding purposes, you know? I mean, and I think if we all are in agreement that those, that's, we're calling that group of students multilingual, but I also feel the nuance in a nuanced way. I'm, I'm a multilingual learner. A lot of people that are not necessarily that group of students that are getting funding are also multilingual learners. Yeah, that, that is one, one piece to take into consideration and to think about it, you know, you have some dual language bilingual education programs that have monolingual English speakers and monolingual other language speakers. Um, and those students in that program would be all called multilingual learners. Uh, and if you look at the way things were handled under NCLB when we had limited English proficient, people stopped using limited English proficient. Um, because Even though it was the terminology in the law, the field generally moved to English language learner because it limited English proficient was so deficit based mm-hmm. uh, that it, it was just like totally like, hey, you know, thumbs down on this group. They're limited, you know, kind of yeah, thing. For sure. Um, so so the field under NCLB, you know, everyone was talked about English language learners and they avoided the use of limited English proficient. Although in the law that defined the group that received those funds was it was labeled limited English proficient. So currently in the law we have this label English learner. So we can talk about in the field and use the terminology that encourages and, and promotes an asset-based point of view and a mindset of multilingual learner, while still you'll hear me switch back and forth between English learner and multilingual learner, especially when I'm talking policy, because that's the term that's used in the law, English learner. So when I'm talking about a, that specific subgroup in the ESSA, you know, as defined in ESSA, I typically will call it the English learner group, the English learner subgroup, or, you know, the English learner students that are served by these, you know, Title I English learner requirements, because that's the term in the law. But when I'm talking about the students, I I, I like and I prefer the term multilingual learner um, when talking about it, because that promotes an asset-based view of those students and, and it isn't reflective of the policy. So we've got a term in policy, English learner, that we can use. Uh, so, but, you know, by calling students multilingual learners that are their first language is something other than English and their, for, or their first language is ling- English, it p- also puts those students on an even ground. Mm-hmm. They're, they're both, multi- both of those students the monolingual English speaker and the monolingual Spanish speaker, they're both multilingual learners if they're in a dual language or bilingual program. I think that the the number one takeaway that I get from your message, though, is that we really have to be cognizant about our own mindsets and if they're asset-based or not, regardless of what we're saying and if it's in the law or not in the law, et cetera. But I really appreciate you bringing that point to the surface is that we need to come in as educators, um, just as humans, and looking at everyone else as having an asset that they bring to the table. You know, really expanding upon people's backgrounds because they have value and they have worth. You have value and you have worth just the same way that our students do, regardless of the language that they speak, how many languages they speak, or even language proficiency levels. Um, Yeah. So when you 
let, let me one yeah, more point please. on this topic is, you know, NALPA has a strong working relationship with the U.S. Department of Education and uh, the Office of English Language Acquisition, you know, considers us their partner organization in a lot of ways. And we have a secretary of education who was an English, uh, English learner, multilingual yes. learner. And when you hear him talk, when he's talking about students, he's talking about multi, he uses the term multilingual learners and you only hear him reference English learner when it's something related to the law or policy. So he, as a sec, as our secretary of education has switched to using terminology that's more asset-based when he can. So to me, that's a, that's a huge, um, you know, confirmation that this we're moving in the right direction. Absolutely. I'm very appreciative of him doing that as well. It's, it's, it's been noticed for sure. I also appreciate his LGBTQ pin that he wears as an openly gay man. So thank you so much to our U.S. Secretary of Education for sure for really being inclusive in that aspect. Um, with all of this, I really want to make sure to ask this one question, but what, and as, we're, as we're coming to a close here, what advice do you have for listeners who are interested in fostering cultural connections um, in their communities, in their schools, and what can they do to take action? What can they really just do to jump in and to make a difference? Well, I mean, there's a number of things that we've talked about, but definitely engage your students and especially their parents. Uh, one of the principles that I share when you're working with students and, and uh, families that are from another culture is just because it's different doesn't mean it's wrong. Mm. Um, when I had friends who worked in uh, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, and some of the low-lying swampy areas, and, and they brought some friends over from the States to try to help, you know, build, you know, some kind of building for this village. And they came in there with their shovels and their picks to this swampy ground. And, you know, you, you, you pull a shovel out of slop and, and it slops back in and you pull, you know. So, so the, the, the hole that you want to be, you know, six inches around ends up, you know, 40 inches around. And you're still not the three feet deep you wanted it to be. <laughs> it, and, and so they, they were like trying to do this. And, and so somebody from the village came over and was like, what are you doing, you know? Why, and they were like, well, we're trying to dig this hole, you know, and, and he was like, well, why are you doing it that way? He went over, got a machete, cut a piece of bamboo down, cut it off at one of the joints and then split it in four ways at that joint so that the it when you huh. pushed it in the ground, it would expand, collect the dirt, pull it back up so you could dig a hole like that. Um, in the dirt straight down without having all of this issue. So this village guy who, you know, would have walked into maybe a situation in the U.S. with a, you know, stick of bamboo trying to dig a hole, you know, it, it wouldn't, doesn't, didn't work there, but it worked where he's from. So just because it's different doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. Uh, and so from our perspective, we would think you need a shovel to do this job or a pick or a post hole digger. But from them, it was a piece of bamboo. Uh, and, and you'll see that a lot in, um, you know, interactions with parents and families that they, they, they might see us doing things differently and wonder why. And helping to explain that to them is huge. Um, and the other piece is assume goodwill. Mm. Uh, I think when you're working with parents, especially, not a lot of parents come to the classroom thinking, 
I'm going to anger my teach my students' teacher. <laughs> this is my goal in this meeting. Okay, that's that's not the perspective that they come with. They're they're coming. They're scared. They're coming from mm-hmm. their own cultural perspective, and where things are different. The educational system is different. We have a Title III immigrant subgrant to help parents who come from other cultures where the educational system is different to understand the U.S. educational system. That's part of the goal of that program. Uh, and so helping parents understand the educational system and how it works and, you know, why do we have an immigrant grant? Is that because of, you know, my, you know, uh, immigration status? No, it's not. It's it's totally unrelated to immigration status. But parents don't know that. So we have to make sure that they know and understand the reasons why we're asking certain questions. So making making sure that you have a a really good connection with your with your parents so that they can know and understand exactly what you're talking about is really important. I agree 100 um, percent. Thank you for that for that reminder. Do you have any other questions, Dr. Tribble? <laughs> no, it's been a great, I mean, I do have other questions, but I, I can tell this could, could go talk on all day. For, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's been a lot of fun. I wish we had more time to, to carry on, but we'll, we'll have to have you back to tell us more stories. Sounds like you've got a really a lot of interesting adventures uh, internationally that would be fun to talk about that definitely apply to. Yeah. I'll have uh, to have you back. How it changed your life and, and, um, on a personal level and allowed you to provide support here within the United States for the, the minority communities that we work with. So well, thank you so much. I'm incredibly thankful to you, Dr. Triple, for introducing me to Dr. David Holberg. And uh, sincerely, ever since I got to meet you, get to know you over at La Cosecha Conference in New Mexico and also at Nialpa Conference this last year in Portland, Oregon. Um, I've really been doing a lot of more research on Nialpa and I've learned so much. And so from someone who's on the ground um, working with school districts, I want to say thank you for sharing all the information that you have because it's allowed me to be a better leader, um, an educator, and just person overall in what I try to do. So thank you so much sincerely for that. And I hope that, you know, I just respect you so much. Thank you. Well, thanks. And congrats to you all but conferred Dr. <laughs> Kelly there. <laughs> yes. Thank you very oh, much. Oh, yeah. Your last name Forbes, is that it? Yep. Dr. Kelly yeah, Forbes. So almost. Dr. <laughs> Kelly Forbes. Almost. Yep. All but conferred. Um, that, that you, you passed your, your, you know, the hardest exam. Yes. Yeah. You, you passed your defense. So now's just the waiting. So congrats on that. Well, thank you so much. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much for spending this time with us. And again, we will see you next time on cultural connections lab. And one more big thank you to our guest today, Dr. David Holbrook. We wish you all the best. And again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.